If you have your Bibles, if you'd open them to the book of James chapter 2. James chapter 2. James has written a sermon in the form of a letter to those followers of Jesus who have left Jerusalem and are scattered among the nations. After a lengthy introduction, it's chapter 1, he now proceeds to flesh out the three points of his sermon, which he gives us at the end of chapter 1. If you look at verses 26 and 27, if anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The three points of his sermon are this, that we should care for others, that's chapter 2, that we should control our tongues, that's chapter 3, and that we should live a holy life, that's chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. And in these three points, we see that we are to be like our Heavenly Father. James's teaching about how we should live is based on how he discerns what he discerns to be true about our Father and what was demonstrated in the life of Jesus. Jesus came to reveal the Father to us, and in part he did this by the way that he lived his life. Jesus said that we are to be like our Heavenly Father, and we might wonder, well, what is our Heavenly Father like? We'll look at Jesus. He is the one who is the revelation of the Father. And so we ask ourselves these three things that James is going to preach about, caring for those in need, controlling our tongues, pursuing holiness. Were these things true about him? What did Jesus do? Did he control his tongue? Well, consider the events of his passion in the words that were spoken centuries before in Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Did he care for those who were in need? In Mark chapter 1, we have the healing of the leper. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man, I am willing, he said, be clean. Or the feeding of the 4,000 as recorded in Matthew chapter 15. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. In the raising of the son of the widow of Nain, this is found in Luke chapter 7. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, she, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When Jesus saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. See, these miracles are not a matter of, look at what I can do. I have power, look what I can do. 
It was, in fact, motivated by his care for those who were in need. A man who had leprosy, people who had not eaten, a mother who had lost her son. And did he keep himself from being polluted by the world? Um, And here I think we should consider the temptations in the wilderness. The temptations have this in common. Take a shortcut. Do it the easy way. Get food now. Turn stones to bread. Prove who you are. Get the world without suffering. I mean, after all, one could argue, why spend the next three years plus with people who are fundamentally flawed, who won't get what you're saying, and who want your miracles, but they don't want you? Then go through the suffering and the death. and Why do that? Just take a shortcut. And Jesus did not. So we ask ourselves, did Jesus care for those in need? Did he control his tongue? Did he keep himself from being polluted by the world? And we would say yes to all three of these questions. We are to follow his example. In chapter 2, as he begins talking about caring for those in need, uh, James does so in a way that seems rather unusual, unexpected. It's just sort of the way that the book opened when he said, consider it all joy when you fall into all kinds of trials. Here he says, my brothers as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ don't show favoritism. I don't really see how that, at least at first glance, how that touches on the issue of caring for those in need. I mentioned this last Sunday, and actually this is our third Sunday to talk about this, that the key to this chapter is faith. But this isn't plain until we come to our text today, which is verses 14 to the end of the chapter, verse 26. He does tell his, his listeners, his readers, why they are not to show favoritism, why they're not to show partiality. Because God did not do so in the person of his son Jesus, Jesus, who is the glory and the presence of God, did not show partiality during his time here on earth. Secondly, God's choices in constructing his kingdom are really quite contrary to the way that we see things. Um, In verse 5 of chapter 2, My dear brothers, has not God chosen those who were poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? And if God chose the things we would not choose, then we need to sort of reorient our thinking when it comes to dealing with people. Then he talked about the oppressive nature of those who are wealthy. And again, I don't think he is against people who have money, you know, people who are rich, but rather those who trust in their riches, those who see this as their security. And because they do, they are exploitative, um, they are manipulative, And in fact, they are slanderous. By their behavior, they slander the name of Christ and his followers. So what should we do? We should follow the royal law. That is, we should love our neighbor as ourselves. If you think about it for a moment, in the illustration that he gives at the beginning of the chapter, two people come into the service. And the service was held in a house. It wasn't in a church building. It was in a house. And one of them looks really important. He's rich. He's dressed well. He has a gold ring on his finger. The other person, frankly, just looks like a beggar. And you say to the rich person, here, 
here's a good seat for you. And to the beggar, you say, well, you can stand over against the wall or you can sit at my feet. Imagine yourself to be one of those two. I think to be the beggar, I think we could see where we'd be really offended that people treated us in such a cavalier way. Um, But even if you were the rich person, that you're being treated specially, you're being taken note of because of your wealth and not really being taken seriously as a person. James tells us that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are not to show favoritism. Then he reminds us, we saw this last week, of several important realities. The law gives us freedom. It allows us to be human, as God intended us to be. The law is to be taken as a whole. You break one part, you break the whole. But as we said in our prayer of confession today, it's not a question of breaking one, we find ourselves breaking them all. But then he ends wonderfully in verse number 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. James knows, we know, that we cannot keep the commandments, cannot keep them perfectly. But God is merciful, and it is seen in the fact that he sent his son. Now let's come to the matter of faith. I've mentioned this several times. The word faith is found a dozen times in the book of James. It appears once in chapter 1, once in chapter 5. The rest of the time, it's all in chapter 2. And in chapter 2, our text today, verses 14 to 26, it appears seven times. So this is sort of the heart of the matter that he's telling us what faith is. What does he tell us about faith? Or what has he told us thus far about faith? It is the primary mark of a Christian. It is the common characteristic of all Christians. So he begins chapter 2 by referring to the readers as my brothers, who are believers, that is, those who have put their faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. To be a Christian, to be a part of the family of God, one is a believer one must have put their faith in Jesus Christ. The second thing that he's told us is that faith is the way in which God enriches us. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? But as we approach our text today, we will get to it. This is the part where people really find that they don't like James. They prefer Paul. They say that James and Paul are in conflict. Um, that's simply not the case. Consider what they both write, that first of all, faith is the gift of God. Again, verse 5, God has chosen us to be rich in faith. In Ephesians 2.8, faith is the gift of God. So they both agree that faith is a gift of God. Secondly, it is the common mark of all believers just mentioned verse number one of chapter two. And in Galatians 3.26, you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And thirdly, and this is where the controversy arises, they both agree that it is the root, faith is the root from which good works arise. We will see in a few minutes the example of Abraham in Titus chapter three, one of Paul's last letters. He says, that good works should result from faith in God. 
So there is no conflict. Until we come to verse number 14. And if you look at verse number 14, because this is the part that gets kind of scary. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Ah, that is the question. It seems to be saying that James is saying that faith is not the gift through which God gives us life and salvation, but that it is the good works that we do. It's not what he's saying, and I hope to make that clear. To understand chapter 2, we have to recognize that there's two parts, the first 13 verses and then the second 13 verses. Um, One of the things about James and his writing, which is not unusual or peculiar, but it gives us, it leads us in the wrong direction, I think, is that it seems to be sort of a stream of consciousness. That he says one word in a verse and then he carries on and then it just goes on. Let me give you an example. In verse number three of chapter one, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. There's perseverance. Then verse four, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature, not lacking anything. The word lacking. If any of you lacks wisdom, that's in verse number five. So it seems that there's a connection that goes from verse to verse, word to word, or phrase to phrase, or even themes. So here in chapter two, the word connection is faith. It, it will go from verse to verse, okay? But the topical connection is one that we might not see as easily, and that is judgment. He told us in verse number 13 that mercy triumphs over judgment, speaking of the final judgment. Here in the second half, he will tell us, he won't use the word judgment, but he will in fact point to the fact that faith without works is dead, and therefore we would be under judgment. One day we will stand before God at the great judgment and it is our faith in Christ, a gift of God, that shows that we are the children of God. But how do I know that I have real faith? How do I know that I have genuine faith, good faith, enough faith? Well, that's what he's going to tell us in these 13 verses. It's not an insignificant matter. In fact, it is the issue at hand. Many claim to have faith in Jesus. But in reality, it's little more than wishful thinking. That everything will turn out for the best. That in the end, it will all turn out well. If only you believe, then all things can happen for you. Uh, James is far too practical uh, to leave things that way. And so what he does in verses 14 through 26 is give us four examples that give us a correct definition of faith. By the way, he starts out negatively. He gives us two negative examples and then two positive examples. The brother or sister who is without clothing and food, the believing demons, Abraham offering his son Isaac, and then Rahab, the prostitute who hid the spies. So, in each of these cases, at the beginning, he will tell us what it is he wants us to see. As I said, there are four illustrations, two are negative and two are positive. 
But James has thought this out. So that the first example, which is negative, and then the fourth example, which is positive, they deal with our relationship with other people. The second one, the second example, which is negative, and the third, which is positive, so demons and Abraham, they deal with our relationship to God. Um, he's really worked this out, and we need to spend as much time uh, in it understanding what he's trying to say. Okay? Let's read verses 14 to 26. James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. The first example is our faith in dealing with those who are in need. In the first example, James basically is talking about uh, the armchair philanthropist, someone who sits and says, go, be warm, keep warm, be well fed. Um, no risk. This is counterfeit faith. On the other hand, we have the risky compassion of Rahab, who had genuine faith. One could make the case that James is dealing with those who are Christian brothers and sisters. Rahab, even though she was a Canaanite, had identified with the people of God and identified herself as a believer in God. Again, he's giving us illustrations. They're not exhaustive. He's just trying to make a point. If you say... I am a believer, I am a follower of Jesus, I have faith. But when it comes to doing something you don't, then one would say that your faith is in fact counterfeit. It's not limited faith, it's not half faith, it's dead faith. It has no life at all. So here at the beginning, those who claim to have faith, who says, I have put my faith in the Lord Jesus, but has no deeds. 
They speak well in the face of need. Here's a brother or sister. Remember, it's in the church that we learn things like don't discriminate. It's in the church that we learn to be generous and to be compassionate. You have a brother or sister who is in need and you're like, God bless you, brother. God bless you, sister. Keep warm and be fed, but does absolutely nothing. Then that's, that's just loose, useless. Consider the opposite, and that is the story of Rahab, the prostitute. Her story is found in Joshua chapter 2, and you may be familiar with it, but let me just remind you. Uh, Israel is ready to cross the Jordan River, and when they do, there's the city of Jericho. That will be the first obstacle that they have to deal with as they come in to conquer the promised land. Joshua sends in two spies to check it out, to see what the city is like. And somehow word gets out that there's some Israelites among us. They had gone to Rahab's place because she was an innkeeper. In the ancient world, inns were oftentimes houses of prostitution as well. So the word has gotten out and she finds out that they're looking for these two men. She hides them on the roof of her house. And when they come, she's like, oh, that is the guards of the king come. She says, oh, they left. They went that way. If you, if you hurry, you can catch them. And so they leave and she allows the spies to escape. She risked everything. She risked her life to help these men who were in need. She told the two spies, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. These aren't just words. Because she believed this to be true, she helped those who were in need. Certainly different from, go, I wish you well. James' point is that one is a dead faith and the other one is a living faith. So when we get to uh, that faith without deeds is dead, just like the body without the spirit is dead. We are alive because our body and our spirit are together. When the spirit is taken away, then we are dead. But it isn't just our relationship with our fellow men, that is, to love our neighbors ourselves. It's also our relationship with God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the examples are really interesting. The first is found when he talks about demons. Um, not the first thing I would think about when talking about faith. But here he contrasts, again, counterfeit faith with genuine faith. One produces only fear. The demons believe and shudder. Their faith, if you wish, their belief, only leads to fear. It is not genuine faith. On the other hand, with Abraham, Abraham believed God, took a tremendous risk, he was obedient, and he came to be known as God's friend. Side note, one might argue that if faith is a gift, and we're told in 1 Corinthians 12 about the gifts, in fact, in verse number 9, someone has the gift of faith, um, 
And the other one we find in Romans 12, someone has the gift of works. Why do I have to have both? Well, Paul there is speaking of gifts. He's not speaking of saving faith. I am not a child of God if, in fact, my faith is not connected with what I do. And once I become a child of God, God may, in fact, give me, if you wish, an extra measure of faith as a gift not only to me but to the church. Or he may, in fact, enrich me to allow me to help those in need. And that's a gift of works or one of the aspects of the gift of works. But faith and works go together in our salvation. And so when Paul talks about the gifts, he's talking about something, I think, quite different. To affirm one's belief in God, I say this carefully, is nothing special. Even though this is the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, because it is followed immediately by love the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. The demons believe the Lord is God, but they do not love. They do not love. And so their faith is counterfeit. It is useless. Dare I say, it is demonic. They believe, but they do not love, and they don't act on this. One writer has put it this way, if demons might hold such faith and remain in perdition, men might hold it and go to perdition. They will join those who believe in God, but do not live it out. So how can we be sure that our faith is in fact true faith, that we really do have peace with God? Well, James gives us the example of Abraham. And again, I think James is trying to be provocative, which he has done at several points already in this letter. That Abraham was justified, declared righteous by works, in verse number 21. Specifically when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. We recently finished a study of the life of Abraham. And so I think we're still familiar with Genesis chapter 22. Isaac was born to Abraham in his old age. He was 100 years old. Sarah was 90 years old. They had waited 25 years for God to fulfill the promise of a child. And then one day God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. And I'm always amazed when I read the next verse. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and left with his son. There was no like, did I really, is that true? was that really God? I must, maybe I imagine that. He obeyed and he went. And again, God says sacrifice him as a burnt offering. You know, it's not like, you know, give your son to live a life of a hermit or to be away from... No, you're going to kill your son and then you're going to burn his body. The son that you waited 25 years for, 
the miraculous son, yeah, you're supposed to offer him. Abraham traveled for three days to get to Mount Moriah. Three days of thinking, is this really what I'm supposed to do? He and his son went up the mountain alone. He built an altar. He put wood on it. He tied up his son, put him on the altar. We've talked about this. Uh, At this point, Isaac is probably in his 20s. He's not a kid. He's a young adult. And Abraham took out a knife to kill him. When the angel of the Lord stopped him, told him there was a ram in the thicket, and he offered the ram in the place of his son. It is this incident to which James refers. He says it in verse number 23, or verse 22 at the beginning, you see, he's going to make some points here, and there are three points. First of all, that faith promotes works. Because Abraham believed God, he was willing to offer him. Faith is not something to be exercised on its own. I believe. Um, Norman Vincent Peale, sort of the father of positive thinking, said that every morning he would sit up in bed and say, I believe, I believe, I believe. Well, at least two questions come to mind. First of all, what do you believe? And secondly, what are you going to do about it? Well, Abraham believed and it led him to obedience. The second point is that faith needs works. You just can't say, I believe. There has to be something that comes with it. The faith was made complete by what he did. And then the third point, and this is where people, I think they miss this, faith comes before works. Okay. So it isn't works that saves you. It is, in fact, faith which leads to works. We saw this last week. Uh, Exodus and then Sinai, you know, redemption and then the law. The law doesn't come first. The law comes after God has already redeemed us. Faith without actions is a demonic and bare affirmation, and it is not sufficient. It is not right. When we act on our faith, then in fact we show it to be genuine. We have the assurance that in fact we are the children of God. By the way, how do we know that Abraham really believed God? Well, the incident that is mentioned is in fact down the road. But Abraham Abraham had to travel down that road to get to that point. He believed God 25 years earlier when God called him and said, leave your father's household and go to a place that I will show you. He had lived a life of faith for 25 years. He fell at different points, but he continued in faith. And so when it comes time to offer Isaac something I think that each of us would tremble to imagine doing, it was part of the journey of faith. He'd been on the journey of faith all along. His faith was not a mere affirmation, I believe. It was, in fact, his faith put into action. So let's sum up what, in fact, James is saying about faith. 
in our dealings with those in need, because that's the first point of his sermon, caring for those who are in need, counterfeit faith risks nothing. There is no risk at all. It's all talk. And that's all it is. It does nothing. It talks a good game, but it does nothing. Genuine faith risks everything and could cost everything. Rahab, had she been caught, could have been put to death. Probably would have been. She's a traitor to her people of Jericho. Abraham had been promised a son, waited 25 years. At this point, it's another 20 years or so. If he kills Isaac, then game over. I mean, it's... They both, Rahab and Abraham, risked everything. In our relationship to God, counterfeit faith mirrors that of the demons. It is diabolical. It is demonic. It's based in faith. They believe that there is a God. They tremble. Genuine faith believes and obeys. And here the example of Abraham is so instructive. In the life of Abraham and Rahab, we see people who believed, who trusted God and acted on that trust and that faith. Years ago, uh, here in Los Angeles, um, there was a serial killer on the loose. I don't know if some of you would remember the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. He would write satanic verses with the blood of his victims. After he was caught, his sister was interviewed by a local TV station. And she was asked, does your brother believe in the devil? And she answered, yes, he believes in the devil. I was watching the news with a friend. And my friend gasped and sat there with his mouth open. And I thought, what's the big deal? I mean, I believe in the devil too. I, believe that Satan exists. And then I realized that what she meant and what my friend understood is she was not saying that her brother believed in the existence of the devil. She was saying he had put his trust, his confidence, his faith in the devil, that he was to be followed and he was to be obeyed. James wants us to see the same distinction. It is not enough to say you believe in God that is the existence of God. We are to put our faith in his son and follow and obey his commands, his law, no matter the risk to ourselves. One of the things that's troubled me over the years in thinking about uh, the book of James is what about our brothers and sisters who have lived under religious persecution? where the Christian faith is outlawed, or they're not allowed to meet in gatherings. Are these three things true of them? Do they care for those in need? Do they control their tongues? Do they pursue holiness? Because if they do, they don't have to be caught at a church service. They will be busted. They will be outed by the fact that they care for those who are in need.
In the second century, it was a practice in some parts of the Mediterranean world that whenever someone came to church uh, and had professed faith in Christ um, and wanted to be baptized, that the church elders would say, okay, uh, for the next two years, uh, we're going to interview your neighbors. And we're going to ask them if, in fact, you are a Christian. The only way that can be determined, I think, is by their actions. Living when and where we do, we are encouraged to keep our faith private, not to bring it into the public square. In fact, this isn't just with regard to our faith, but in many other things, things that make us unique, the things that make us who we are. It's like, that's fine, you keep that at home. When you're at work, when you're at school, wherever you are in the neighborhood, um, just be like everybody else, because it's the public square which is shared. Um, And so the idea of living out our faith, I think, becomes more and more difficult. But I would suggest it begins by caring for those who are in need. I think something else has happened because we live even in a postmodern world, but in a modern world, the Christian faith has been reduced to information. So many things have been reduced to information. And so if you affirm, if you make a mental assent, yes, I believe that these things are true. Um, in our world, I think some people would say, well, that's, that's good enough. Um, but that, in fact, is self-deception. It is diabolical. It is demonic. So, just in closing, I mentioned this last week, how do we care for those who are in need? Well, there are a lot of ways we can do this, and there isn't one prescribed way. There isn't a cookie-cutter approach to this. Um, It doesn't always mean giving people something. You know, the example is that if somebody is cold and is in need of clothing or food, that you should give them food and clothing. That is one way in which you can care for those who are in need. But another way in which you can care for those who are in need is by simply being present, being there with them. And also understand, we're not called to do everything to everyone. God has put us where we are. He brings the people he does across our path that we can help them. I I don't need to go out and look for people to help. God, in fact, will bring them across our path. And it begins in the church, by the way, and then it goes out from here. I mentioned this last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, when Paul is writing about giving to those in need, the poor people in Jerusalem, that people should give according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. God has given you what you have. He's brought people across your path. In faith, we are to risk, and we are to help those who are in need. But the bottom line is we need wisdom to know what is the right thing to do. Um, We are to act on our faith. No question about that. But how do we know if in this 
particular instance I'm supposed to do something. Well, if you lack wisdom, ask God. That's James chapter 1. And if we are to exercise our faith, we need God's wisdom to do so. Let's pray together. Our Father, in many ways, we give in to the temptation that Jesus faced, and that is to take a shortcut. And to feel that by merely asserting that I do believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, all the creeds that the church has, that somehow we've checked off the box and we are people of faith and good standing. The idea that we might have to do something might seem foreign to us because it seems that it's works and not faith. But the two go together as the body and the spirit go together. We thank you for all you have given us. We thank you for the people you bring across our path. And we ask you that you would give us wisdom that we might live out our faith by caring for those who are in need. We'll probably make mistakes. But you are merciful and we're grateful for that. But we look to you, may we look to you, that we who are your children will not merely be like demons and say we believe in you, but our, put our faith into practice. We live in a country in which oftentimes those things are left up to the government, that the government will take care of the poor, will take care of the needy, and somehow we feel that we no longer are responsible for such things. Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts. Open our minds. May we in the days to come think on these things and in the words of James, not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. May we be like Rahab and Abraham, whose faith indeed was genuine. Thank you for bringing us together today, the beginning of a new week, the ending of a season. We're grateful that Ori and Joel are with us today. We pray for Ori as she waits for the result of her MRI. We ask for a good result. Touch her and heal her, we pray. And now as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.